The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. Today's episode is going to be a little different. There's been a lot of cases that I've covered over the past about year and a half, and I actually just hit my 40th episode, so I figured I would celebrate with a case updates style episode for you. Today's episode is going to be a little different. I've been reflecting back on the past year and a half of the Crimopedia podcast, and there's a lot of stories that I've told, a lot of them are yet to be told, and I constantly have new ideas. But the thing we can't forget about these cases is that they're real stories and real families, often involving court cases, legal proceedings that are still in the works, at least by the time my episode is published. So I think it's a really good time right now in my show's history, I suppose, to give you some case updates. I'd like to give a special shout out to my new assistant volunteer, Emily, for helping me go through my old episodes and pick out the ones that had new developments since I talked about them. Emily, you are the best. I'll be talking about a few different cases that I've covered both in 2021 and 2022. So with that, without further ado, I think it's a good time to jump right in. The first case I want to touch on today is actually the suspicious disappearance and, frankly, presumed death of Angela Green. If you remember, I covered her case actually over a year ago, just over a year ago, back last September. I had a very brief conversation with Ellie, just getting the green light to post an episode about her mom. Since then, however, and even before I posted my episode, Angela's story has picked up a lot of momentum in the true crime community. I remember when I first heard about the suspicious disappearance of Angela Green, and I was so shocked that no one was talking about it, that's essentially why I made my episode on it, but now it's it's totally different. To give you sort of a recap on the major details, Angela Green was moved over to the United States in Kansas by her husband that she met overseas, Jeff. They had a daughter together named Ellie, and everything was pretty normal for them regarding their home lives for as long as any of them can remember. The only thing was that Angela didn't speak the greatest English, and she didn't really have a social circle she could rely on, and so, by all accounts, she was pretty socially isolated, and really depended on her husband and daughter for that social support. This obviously complicated things when Angela went missing. After an altercation with her daughter Ellie, Angela went missing back in 2019 and has never been seen since. Initially, Jeff, Ellie's dad, and Angela's husband told Ellie that Angela had passed away under very mysterious circumstances. Ellie went to seek out a death certificate on her own and was never able to find one. This obviously raised some alarm bells for her, but when she called police and they arrived at the home and wanted to talk to Jeff, he changed his story and said that, oh, she's alive and well, Angela, she's fine, she just ran away. Since then, Jeff's story has changed a lot, and there have been a lot of moving parts to this story that have developed since I talked about the case. I've been following Michelle Guo, who is Angela Green's niece and Ellie's cousin on TikTok for a while now. She's been doing her very best to use trending sounds and 
different things to make viral videos about Angela's case and give updates, the latest of which unfortunately have not been so great. As of this past May in 2022, the true crime community was very excited to hear that the FBI were actually brought in to join in on the investigation into Angela's disappearance. This seemed very promising and was a subtle indicator to everyone involved that police did suspect that Angela's disappearance wasn't a matter of her running away of her own volition. But then, before Michelle Guo took a break from TikTok after this announcement was made, she posted about how she flew back to Kansas from New York to meet with law enforcement and the FBI, who had notified her that they just, almost two years later, received all the evidence collected from the initial search warrant executed of Jeff and Angela's house, and they were only just starting to process it. This raised so many questions, at least for me. You know, what was even done with all of the physical evidence that was collected? What physical evidence was even collected? When I covered the case, when I was doing my own research, I was under the impression that everything we knew about what happened to Angela was literally just Jeff's hearsay. Frankly, I didn't know there was any physical evidence really collected at all. It brings up questions about what was happening in the investigation during this time. Obviously, there is someone here who was missing, who was a valued member of a family, whose daughter, Ellie, has now spent endless hours trying to demand answers from her father, and now, I guess, they have to fight law enforcement for those same answers, too. As of about two weeks ago, Michelle Guo came back to TikTok, and she said it's been a lot for her still trying to continuously process what could have possibly happened to Angela, given no one's seen her in over two years. As well, the police and FBI have apparently been dismissive. Not only did they take their sweet time processing what little physical evidence they must have collected, but now they're not giving Michelle any updates on the status of the investigation at all. Sometimes, I know law enforcement may do this if they're trying to keep information quote-unquote close to the vest, but from my understanding of the details of the case, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence against Jeff and a lot of weird behavior that he's conducted, but nothing concrete that they could even build a case on. But again, that's as far as we know. Maybe they know something we don't, and something they don't want to share with Angela's family either. I just don't understand why they wouldn't point the family in some sort of direction, let Ellie and Michelle know that their efforts aren't being totally wasted validate them and their concerns about the nature and direction of the investigation. I don't understand why it's so hard for law enforcement to be compassionate, <laughs> to be honest. However, like I mentioned, momentum has really been picking up in Angela's case, and I'm hoping that law enforcement are feeling the heat as well. The Voices for Justice podcast, hosted by Sarah Turney, has covered the case super in-depth, and I highly recommend you checking out her episode if you want to learn more about the disappearance of Angela Green. Many, many, many much larger creators in this space than myself have also now began to talk about Angela. And finally, she's getting the coverage that she deserves. And the great injustice, frankly, that has been done to Ellie and Michelle as they search for answers is finally being recognized. But it's not over yet. We need to be active true crime content consumers and continue to fight for answers in Angela's case. Keep watching videos about her, learning about her, make comments, send emails, you can sign a petition that I'll link on my website and my Instagram. You can also donate. I know Michelle and Ellie are trying to fundraise money to hire civil lawyers so that they can at least bring this case to civil court. 
That would be different than bringing criminal charges against Jeff Green for the disappearance of Angela. Obviously, like I mentioned, the investigation into that avenue isn't really going as planned. But I think what they're trying to do is bring some sort of wrongful death lawsuit into civil court and have him at least take public accountability for whatever happened to Angela. I really hope, even if this case doesn't make it to criminal court, that Michelle and Ellie can at least get some answers and some clarity, because this has been going on for way too long. The next case I want to talk about is the disappearance of Jessica Gutierrez. Her case was one of the first ones that I ever talked about on my podcast. On June 5th of 1986, Jessica was kidnapped from her own bedroom in the middle of the night while her family was still sleeping. Why I'm telling you about this today is that this many years later, there are new developments in her case, and it looks like someone is about to be prosecuted. Back in January of this year, 2022, 61-year-old Thomas McDowell was charged with the kidnapping and murder of Jessica back in 1986. The kicker is, she is still missing. They've never found her body, but is presumed dead. This is very unheard of. It's incredibly difficult to try no-body cases. I mean, it's so easy to induce reasonable doubt into the mind of the jury about someone's guilt if you can't even find a body to prove that someone's dead in the first place. True crime YouTuber Daniel Hallen talks about this in a decent amount of her videos. She explains why it's so difficult to try no-body cases in a way that's very easy to understand. But for all intents and purposes, just know that this is wild. Thomas McDowell's involvement was suspected after another look at the case with help from FBI agents and analysts from the Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team began in September of 2021. I'm not entirely sure what prompted them to take a second look at this case, but I'm sure as the proceedings continue, we will find out that kind of information. According to Lexington County Sheriff Jay Kuhn, law enforcement examined more than 3,500 case file pages and interviewed more than 125 people during this process of taking a fresh look. It turned out that back in 1986 when the case was being first investigated, McDowell was identified through a fingerprint found at the scene, something I brought up in my original episode. But it turns out he was also ID'd in a photo lineup. I'm presuming the person who identified him was Jessica's sibling, someone who was really young at the time Jessica was kidnapped, and later made statements that they remember seeing a man in a magic hat coming into the house and taking Jessica away. But just off of that itself, it's hard to verify that statements made by such young children are going to be true. But this was frustrating because on top of this photo lineup ID, like I mentioned, there was a fingerprint. And this is something that I remember looking into when Deborah, Jessica's mom, was giving interviews about who she suspected might have been the one to kidnap her daughter. But we will get to that. It turns out that Thomas McDowell had also been making statements to his acquaintances about his involvement in kidnapping and killing Jessica. From what I understand about Thomas and this case in general, he's got a bit of a shady reputation, but I don't recall ever reading any statements that were made previously or that were known previously where he had explicitly taken accountability for Jessica's disappearance and death. 
But now, I guess according to at least one of the 125 people police interviewed beginning in 2021, he had made those statements. And again, I'm not entirely certain what prompted police to take a second look into this case and re-examine Thomas McDowell's potential role in Jessica's disappearance and possible death, I should say probable death, but it's possible that maybe one of these witnesses came forward and told police that he'd been making these statements. But again, I can only speculate. And to Jessica's mom, Deborah, this was not really all that surprising. Like I mentioned, she had been quite candid about suspecting someone in particular of being the culprit. In her mind, she knew exactly who broke into her house and took her daughter. The media has speculated that Thomas McDowell is believed, but not confirmed, to be the same person that Deborah speculated this entire time. But I remember talking about this in my episode, talking about how Deborah thought it was one person behind this the entire time, and how her opinion never wavered. I also remember doing my own research on this and trying to find out who she could have been talking about. And without really all that much digging, I also came across his name. Given what Deborah Gutierrez claimed to have known about Thomas, and given how easily it was to find him in publicly available criminal databases, and given the fingerprint and everything else that was just discussed, I don't know why he hasn't been charged sooner, but nevertheless, I'm really glad it's happening. Thomas McDowell appeared in court on March 31st, 2022, just this past spring, and he was met with Jessica's family in the courtroom holding a large photo of her, and I'm sure enjoying every single second they got to see him face justice. Justice that is long overdue. His defense was essentially grasping at straws, trying to argue that there was not enough evidence to establish any sort of case against him, but Lexington County Magistrate Judge Buck ruled that he would stand trial and that there is in fact enough evidence to convict him. If you want to learn more details about the case and about the circumstances of Jessica's disappearance, then I highly recommend you go back and listen to my original episode, which was published in, I believe, April of 2021. I'm not sure exactly what other evidence law enforcement may have against Thomas McDowell or, again, why they began re-looking into him in the first place. Maybe for once, law enforcement was actually listening to the family of a victim, which we love to see and unfortunately isn't very common. But until the proceedings take place, which we're waiting for, we won't really know. But stay tuned for more details because I'm, I'm very excited to see this case get solved. Let me remind you, she was kidnapped back in 1986. That was well before I was even born. If you'll remember, only a few episodes ago, I spoke about the tragic suicide of Amanda Todd. If you haven't listened to the episode already, I highly recommend that you do so because even if you've heard about her death before, you might not know how deeply disturbing the circumstances around it actually were. Amanda Todd was only 15 years old when she took her life after facing years of bullying and harassment, in particular at the hands of one man affiliated with a sextortion ring. As I spoke about in the episode, recently this man's name, Aiden Coben, was released to the public. Now, this was interesting because usually cases in Canada involving child pornography, and Amanda was 15 years old at the time, being technically a child, people in those cases don't often have their names exposed to the public. 
But given the nature of her death and how long people had been waiting for and fighting for justice for Amanda, a judge in British Columbia ruled that absolutely the world could know exactly who Aidan Coban was. Earlier this year in 2022, it was announced that he would be sentenced after being charged with harassment, extortion, child pornography, luring, all these things on September 20th. But unfortunately, that sentencing hearing was pushed back once again after some issues involving COVID-19. However, as of today, October 14th, 2022, when I'm recording this, Aidan Coben was sentenced to 13 years in prison. I'll read you a direct quote from the judge who oversaw the sentencing, Martha Devlin. Ruining Amanda's life was Mr. Coben's expressly stated goal and was sadly one that he achieved. Mr. Coben deliberately took advantage of a vulnerable and innocent young girl. I would like to highlight the word innocent being used because, like I spoke about previously, a lot of people attack Amanda's character because of the types of things she was doing online. Sure, maybe it was inappropriate for a girl of her age to be hiding out in random online video chat rooms, but it does not justify what happened to her at the hands of Aiden Coben and all of the pedophiles he worked with. I'm very, very happy to see this entire case come to a resolution, one that ended in what I believe to be justice being delivered. Aiden Coben is currently 44 years old and he's also serving a sentence of about 11 years in the Netherlands right now for similar offenses that, once again, I talk about in my full episode. According to an article I read in CTV News, it looks like he's got just about under two years left of that sentence before he'll start serving time in Canadian prison. And the best part of this whole thing to me is that the judge ruled that his sentence in the Netherlands and the one he would face in Canada would be served consecutively, meaning one after another, meaning that time served in the Netherlands for similar crimes does not account for time served in Canada. And thankfully, that means this sick, evil, twisted, disgusting man will be off the streets for much, much longer. Next, I really wanted to revisit the case of Tamla Horsford. It was her case, actually, that inspired me to start this podcast from scratch, and it was the first one I ever began researching before I was ready to publish anything. However, I opted to stall its release a little bit so I could get all of the details right and make sure I told the story in a cohesive way, which, <laughs> to be honest, not entirely sure that I did. I hope I did, but it's a story I already know that many creators have covered, and it's captured a lot of media attention. Recently, though, that attention really seems to have died down, and yet there's still really nothing new to say in her case. The only real update I could find was that the family decided to release a full independent autopsy report in the spring of this year, insisting that, quote, the police narrative doesn't complete the puzzle of what happened to her. If you listened to that episode, you would know that Tamala Horsford was found deceased after an adult slumber party at an acquaintance's house. People debate back and forth about whether this is relevant or not, but I think it's important to note that Tamla was the only person of color present at the house that evening. I also think it's important to mention that the town this case happened in, that being Cumming, Georgia, was overwhelmingly predominantly white with a very disturbing, deep-rooted history of intense and violent racism. 
And it's a history that personally, I don't think just gets washed away after a few new generations that seem to be more tolerant because you know, even if they're not outwardly as worse as their white ancestors, I mean, these biases still linger. And it was pretty obvious to everyone right from the jump that Tamala's race might have had something to do with why she was found deceased, especially under such odd circumstances. More than that though, it may serve to explain why police have essentially refused to do anything in trying to investigate what really happened to her. If you recall, back in 2020, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, or the GBI, reopened Tamla's case after it went cold, and this seemed to be a pretty hopeful prospect given the investigation up to that point was frankly botched. But nothing new came out of this. After the announcement that the GBI was going to be reopening the case, literally nothing else happened. Law enforcement continued to insist that Tamla was just drunk, possibly mixing substances, and was found dead outside because of what she chose to do. Although on the surface, it seems plausible that Tamla decided to get drunk and high at the same time and then accidentally fell off a second-story balcony, the injuries that were reported in this independent autopsy report quote-unquote only work in isolation from other facts. One of the interesting pieces of information that I found while doing research into this independent autopsy report was some more details about her injuries, which were already documented pretty extensively, but much like how police decide to take a fresh look at a case, I kind of felt like I was doing the same thing. One of the injuries Tamla sustained during her fall, or after being pushed, you can say, was a compound wrist fracture. You can almost see what looks like and is reported to be bone actually sticking out of her wrist from this injury. However, there's like no blood at the scene at all. The little blood that is visible on the scene is a small droplet of it on her sleeve, on her other wrist though. People debate whether or not this means that this injury happened post or pre-mortem, whether someone broke her wrist or her wrist was broken somehow before or after death. Tamla's dad, for one, definitely thinks it didn't happen while she was alive. According to Dr. Adele Shaker, the forensic pathologist who examined Tamla's body after the GBI did, this idea of her wrist being broken post-mortem is not actually too far out of the realm of reality given the state that it was in. Even further, Dr. Shaker notes that there are many discrepancies between his findings and the GBI's findings. The GBI noted a fracture in Tamla's spine, Dr. Shaker says it wasn't actually a fracture at all. I'm not sure what it is. But most importantly to me is that Dr. Shaker highlights a total and complete lack of injuries to Tamla's skull and bones. To him, this quote raises the flag to the cause of death as falling from the second story of a building, end quote. I mean, you would think that if someone fell from a second story balcony and died, that they would have more injuries to their skull and bones than nothing. And you would also think that the only injury someone would have wouldn't just be a simple compound wrist fracture, a wrist fracture that frankly is even debated as to whether or not it happened during whatever caused her death in the first place. It's pretty clear to me that Tamla's injuries do not align with the theory that police have stuck with and ran with since she passed away. And whatever did happen to her, it's much, much more than what law enforcement has been leading on. 
I'm gonna put up a few articles on my website where you can really dive into this independent autopsy report. I know sometimes getting an independent opinion hired by a family can maybe sometimes be influenced by bias, at least that's some of the arguments I've heard online. But at this point, I think it's really important that any qualified medical professional who's able should take a look at what they're seeing here. Given the conflicting information coming from law enforcement and various sources, I think it's important to have a diversity of inputs to really figure out what happened to Tamla. Her family is certainly not giving up on trying to make this happen. So I really encourage you to take a second look at this case and find some more videos, share her story if you can. At the very least, if not an explicit homicide, Tamla's death is certainly very suspicious. If you'll remember, in the springtime, I did a series called On the Coattails, Stories of the Missing Missing. This was actually an assignment for one of my university courses, and I loved it so much and found so much passion in it that I decided to turn it into a real series for my show. In that, I discovered the case of Kylan Schulte and Crystal Turner. They were found murdered in the summer of 2021, around the same time that the whole Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie saga was unfolding. It was interesting because people in the media decided to connect their case to Gabby and Brian's case because Gabby and Brian were in the exact same area that Kylan and Crystal were at the time of their death. In fact, people also speculated, if you listened to my original episode, you'll remember me saying this, that Brian Laundrie himself could have even been responsible for it as it was not too far out of the realm of reality that Kylan and Crystal could have witnessed Brian Laundrie actually abusing Gabby. But the latest update I have for you is that in 2022, Kylan Schulte's dad, Sean Paul Schulte, has come out publicly and said he's 100% confident he knows exactly who killed his daughter and her wife, and it's not Brian Laundrie. Sean Paul Schulte thinks it's a man named Adam Pekunsiewicz. I do struggle with that last name pronunciation, so I'm just gonna call him Adam P. This past May, the Grand County Sheriff's Office had named Adam P. a suspect in the case of Kylan and Crystal's murder. But unfortunately, only a month after they were found deceased, Adam P. actually committed suicide in September of last year. Adam P. was actually a homeless man who kind of traveled in and out of the Moab, Utah area, and according to law enforcement, he was quote-unquote one of the many persons of interest being investigated at the time of their deaths. Now, law enforcement acknowledging that Adam P. more than likely was the person to actually kill this couple is a really new development, and any official proceedings to follow that, any releases of evidence, none of that's even close to happening right now. And this includes information on how Adam P. could have even come across Kylan and Crystal during their adventures. All of the news articles that I'm finding right now about Adam P. and Kylan and Crystal are purely speculative, and nobody really knows how these three came to be in the same place at the same time, or why Adam P. would have any reason to shoot them. But Sean Paul Schulte is 100% sure that the entire time he suspected Adam P., he was correct, and there's good reason for him to think that. In an article that I found by abc4.com, Sean Paul Schulte is quoted as saying, it's the confidence they have. It's the way that law enforcement is speaking with me now. They can't tell me what they have, but they can tell me once they do close the case and they do hand all the files over to me, I'll be shocked with the preponderance of evidence. 
I remember earlier this year when I was doing research into Kylan and Crystal's deaths, I came across information about Adam P. I wasn't exactly sure what to make of it at that time, and I didn't want to put his name in there to be completely speculatory. It's not something I like to do on this show. And again, this man had committed suicide, and so there was no possible way he could have ever cleared his name if for whatever reason he was innocent and his name was picking up momentum in the media. But I think this conclusive determination by Jean-Paul Schulte, with seemingly him being backed up by law enforcement, is really, really telling. I'll be really looking forward to seeing what comes out of this in the next year and finding out more details about Kylan and Crystal's death. Although this case will obviously never go to trial because Adam P is no longer here on Earth, it would still be really nice to get more of that evidence that Sean Paul Schulte speaks of and be able to piece together what happened to Kylan and Crystal more than what I was able to do in my original episode during the On the Coattails series. If you're interested, you can listen to that, but I'll also throw up some articles on my website if you want to take a deeper dive, because what happened to them is just mind-boggling. I wasn't sure, frankly, if we'd ever get answers in what happened, but I'm very glad to hear that it's more than likely that we will, even though Adam P. has been dead for almost a year now. Lastly, in today's episode, I want to address another case in that same On the Coattail series, the incredibly suspicious disappearance of Daniel Robinson. If you'll recall, Daniel Robinson went missing in the Arizona desert after he was supposed to be working at a field site. He was last seen on June 23rd, 2021 in Buckeye, and since then, nobody has been able to find him, and there's no clues at all as to what could have happened. Everything that has been found, like his car that was found crashed last year, honestly brings forward more questions than answers, and that has been true every step of the way. Unfortunately, in Daniel's case, I actually don't have any new updates to share, but I did want to take this opportunity and share with you his father's efforts to find his son, his social media, and all of the things that he's doing to help bring light to Daniel's case. Daniel's father, David Robinson, is one of the most active users on all of my social media platforms that I have ever seen. Every single post is about mobilizing efforts to find his son, about how much his son means to him, about how greatly he is missed, about how law enforcement has frankly failed, about how he's been dismissed by law enforcement, and about how he will never give up until he figures out what happened to his son. Again, unfortunately, there's really no more movement that's happened in this case, but that doesn't mean that David Robinson is going to stop trying. He's been organizing search efforts in the desert since his son went missing. At one point, I'm not sure if they're still happening as frequently now, but they were happening weekly. Weekly, he was mobilizing volunteers to go out there and physically search for his son, and most of that started to happen once he figured out that law enforcement wasn't going to be helping anytime soon. If you or someone you know lives in the Arizona area, particularly in Buckeye, and you're interested in helping out with finding Daniel Robinson, then I highly recommend you check out the Twitter page at pleasehelpfind4. There, you can find links to different social media pages, different posts, and support David Robinson in all of his efforts to find his son. I'll leave you today with a quote from David that really resonated with me as someone who tells stories about incredibly tragic, deep, and personal family traumas. 
When the lights and camera turn off, I will be here. When the interest and conversation fades, I will be here. When there's no one around, a father will do anything it takes to be there for his son, to protect his family. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. I know this one's a little short and it's not quite as detailed as I would like to deliver, but frankly, again, I'm a full-time student and academics have been really heavy lately, but I wanted to provide you with something and I thought this was the perfect time to revisit some of the cases that I've already discussed. Like I mentioned, these cases are dynamic and ever-evolving. Just because someone talks about it once doesn't mean that things aren't changing. It doesn't mean that the families of these victims stop living. And as exemplified by David Robinson, it certainly doesn't mean they stop fighting either, no matter how much time passes. And I'll see you here for a special episode on October 31st, 2022. Halloween, baby.